Communication with the client is the biggest, best thing the veterinarian can do. If, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Andrea, there are some bad veterinarians out there <laughs> yes. who, whose clients love them so much that no matter what happens, they would never turn them in. Right. And it's because of the communication. It's because every time there's a bad outcome, the veterinarian tells the owner. Every time there's, you know, a, a bad news of any kind, the veterinarian tells the owner. The veterinarians have close ties with the owners. Frequently, they live in the same neighborhood. There's just this communication thing that makes the owners feel comfortable with the vet, and they would never turn them in. Hello, Positive Leaders. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to the Positive Leadership Podcast with Andrea Crabtree and David Liss, a podcast for everything a veterinary manager needs to know to get the job done. We've been there and we know how hard it is and are here to help share our knowledge and expertise to elevate you. I'm Andrea Crabtree, co-founder of Positive Leadership Podcast, owner of FurPaws Consulting, a certified veterinary practice manager, and HR certified professional. And I'm David Liss, co-founder of the Positive Leadership Podcast. I'm also a certified veterinary practice manager, hold an MBA, and I'm a registered veterinary technician. And this podcast is for you, the veterinary practice manager, supervisor, leader. We want to elevate you by equipping you with relevant content, material, guidelines, instruction, feedback, and pro tricks and tips. We will deliver real life experience along with our super smart guests that will get you through the obstacles that you're facing today with some bloopers and blunders along the way to remind you that you're not alone. This episode is generously sponsored by AmeriVet Veterinary Partners. Better business, happier vets, healthier pets. We are super excited to have our super special guest here, Bonnie Lutz, today. She is amazing, and I cannot say enough about her. Bonnie, I've known you for several years now, and I can't imagine going through my veterinary career without being able to have you right by my side along the way, partnering with me, uh, not only in my practices, but in practices all around um, Southern California that I know, that I work with, my colleagues work with. You have just been an amazing resource. And I know David doesn't know much about you, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more about you. So without having to read your bio, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Oh, I'd be happy to. And thank you so much for the kind words. I love working with you too. And oh, I love you. working with the hospital managers, as you know. Yes. So um, I went to the University of Massachusetts, graduated in microbiology, came to California and became a public health microbiologist, which is what I did for 20 years. I was in the um, tuberculosis laboratory. I was in charge of it. So I was very involved in um, when the Vietnam War ended and all the Vietnamese came to Orange County and they had a lot of tuberculosis. And then, of mm-hmm. course, I was involved with um, the whole process of finding AIDS because AIDS wasn't um, directly related to my mycobacteria, except that a lot of the patients were getting a lot of strange mycobacterial diseases. So we were involved. It was a very exciting time. I left yeah. there after 20 years. And I went to, my husband and I manufactured an endoscope reprocessor, a disinfector for endoscopes. And Mm -hmm. I did that 10 years. And then when we were selling the company, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. So my friend, who's an attorney down in San Diego, said, why don't you go to law school? And I said, what? 
and wow. that's what I did. So when I was 50, I went to law school, and now I've been practicing law for 20 years. So that's kind of my little spiel. Which is totally crazy. I never knew that about your first 30 years of your career. Like, I expected you to say something like, I went to law school and then I practiced this law and that law. (laughs) Wow, that's fantastic. I learned something new about you today. And I just have so many other questions now. We're going to stick with the veterinary health stuff. We're going to We could talk for hours about this. Scrap what we talked about. We're switching gears now. (laughs) Wow, that is a great career. Definitely has had some twists and turns along the way, it sounds like. If you could pick one favorite book or uh, class you went to or CE or lecture or conference or something that left a lasting effect on you, what would you say that would be and why that? Well, right now I'm reading Cast. And if if you're familiar with that, it's Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents and I, it was sent to me, I'm, I'm on something called National Canine Research Council, which is put together by uh, Animal Farm Foundation, and there's advisors, and, and the person from Animal Farm Foundation sends us a gift every year, and this year she sent us this book, Cast. And it's fascinating. Um, it talks, it compares the plight of the African American with the caste system in India and also with what the Nazis did. What I find interesting from my perspective is that I grew up in Massachusetts in a home where I never even heard the N-word. So considering how old I am, you know, my parents never referred to anybody with the N-word. My father was a musician. You know, he played in bands with African-Americans. And so I always thought, you know, I'm not part of the problem, so I'm not going to get to feel too guilty about this because I never even grew up any place where they had slaves. But this mm-hmm. book has led me to believe that, you know, I'm part of the problem just because I ignored it all these years. So yeah. I think that even though it's something I'm reading right now, it's really mm-hmm. opened my eyes and made me think, you know, I really, I need to get involved somehow. Mm-hmm. And just because, right. you know, I didn't have slaves doesn't take me out of the equation. Yeah, yeah. it's still not a part of the solution. Yeah, just because you're That's, not a part of the problem doesn't make yeah. you part of the solution, right? Yeah. yeah, Yeah, very interesting. Jeez. Well, again, so many questions, so many directions. (laughs) Um, We'll definitely have to have you on to talk more about some of these things. But today, um, we wanted to dig in a little bit to your law specialty, if if I can call it that. You specialize in defending veterinarians against administrative actions brought by the state of California, the Veterinary Medical Board, uh, against them for, for, you know, I'm sure a variety of reasons. So why veterinary law? I mean, you have a kind of almost a medical background, a science background, but how did you get into that? Uh, You know, there's a million things to do as a prosecutor, right? And so why veterinary law? Why does that keep you going? And why did you, how did you fall into that? Well, when I started, after I graduated from law school, I did uh, work with a medical malpractice attorney in San Diego for about six months. And at the time, I really decided I didn't want to do medical malpractice. So because of my science background, I was doing mold litigation defense. <laughs> so, okay. You know, there was a lot of mold Again, more questions. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I did right. that for a while. Um, but then, Andrea, you probably know that we're good friends with John and Susan Hamill, who yes. John Hamill was a veterinarian in, in um, Laguna Beach for years. Yeah. His wife, Susan, is an RBT. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of them are pretty well known in the profession, and they've been our personal friends of ours since the 70s. So at one point in time, John said, why don't you get involved with veterinarians, and why don't you help veterinarians? Long story short, 
because of the way the insurance worked, we were on panel for, which at the time was Fireman's Fund, and Fireman's Fund was handling a lot of the, the licensed defense cases for veterinarians in California, and I called the adjuster and said, I'd like to do these, and the rest is history. I've, I've done over 500 of them now, and I just love it. So I just went through a veterinary medical board inspection mm, the practice that I oversee. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna rant for a couple of minutes, and then I'm, I'd love your take. So the inspector, and no names, obviously, inspector was was very nice, and this person was very supportive during the inspection, and said I wasn't there specifically. My my manager was, and said. Uh, things like, you know, um, we we can work on this and, you know, the, that we understand you're trying. And that was great. And then the report came out and it was about 32 pages of the most nitpicky, wow. ridiculous stuff that I can imagine. Now, listen, I see both sides, right? I get they have a job. I know they're enforcing the Practice Act. But my question is, how, how does one handle that and you know when as managers we actually are taught how to handle ocean inspections right you greet the inspector you ask for credentials um, if you're a manager uh, typically you don't say sure carte blanche walk through you ask to get the owner on the phone you try to see if if the uh, inspector needs to immediately inspect or if they can wait until a member of ownership comes like there's all these steps right my question to you is how should practices deal with a veterinary medical board inspector. So you're a manager, you're an owner, you opened up shop seven months ago, you know, you, you got the, the premise permit and somebody goes, knock, 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 I'm here from the veterinary medical board. What do you do next, Bonnie? Okay, well, I mean, it, it's really a much, it's a much broader issue than just that. So let's start with assuming that it's just a veterinary medical board inspection, which I assume is what you had. Like a random and, inspection. Yeah. Exactly, um, yeah, it wasn't a complaint that we knew of. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but you don't know when the when the person comes to the door. But yes, you should do the same things you do with OSHA. You should ask them for their identification and not volunteer anything. But my biggest thing with a vet board inspection is that I think that there should be a dedicated person who's ready to dive into that inspection. It shouldn't be sort of whoever ends up being the unlucky one that answers the door. So there should be somebody who really has been trained in how to do that and knows how to do it and knows where everything is and knows where the drug logs are and the medical records are. If you've got computerized medical records, they need to be able to be able to download some of those and generally walk the person through. Now, it doesn't have to be the veterinarian. And in fact, I think it's a bad idea to have the veterinarian involved right. in the inspection. Yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't ha necessarily have to be the practice manager because you're not there all the time, but find somebody who you know will be good at it and somebody who won't volunteer a lot of information and won't get too chatty. Because what I've found is that these inspectors, they work very hard at making you feel relaxed, but then they, you know, shoot you in the back, basically, which is right. the experience you had. So exactly, um, yep. you don't want somebody who's extra chatty, who's going to volunteer a lot of information, you know, like Dr. So-and-so, well, he's really never here, and Dr. whatever, and the guy with the, the premises licensee manager, he's only here like once a month. I mean, you know, you don't want somebody who's going to chit-chat with them right, because right. they will encourage yeah. that. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, they, sure, they will encourage sure. that chit chat. You're going to hang yourself. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, is, if it's just a veterinary medical board complaint, I mean, just a veterinary medical board inspection and it's a routine inspection, they'll just ask you for like six 
surgical records and six medical records. They'll look at your drug logs. They'll do that. Mm -hmm. Now, if they start asking for records on a specific patient, you know it's not routine. Okay. So then it's complaint related. Now, some of the inspectors will tell you up front, this is complaint related. Some of them won't. And so, but you'll know if they start asking for specific things or if they want the drug logs for these specific dates Mm -hmm. or if they want um, surgical records on specific patients, then it's, then it's complaint related or it's a follow-up inspection because there was a bad complaint. There was a bad inspection Mm -hmm. previous to that. Gotcha. So those are kind of your clues. Now, when you get the inspection report at the end, at the top right they should have checked off on routine inspection, follow-up inspection, or they'll have a number there, a big, mm-hmm. long number. If there's a big, long number, that means that it's complaint-related because mm-hmm. that's the number of the complaint. The other thing I really c- caution people about, too, though, is if the the vet board inspector comes with other folks, you need to really understand who those other folks are. Now, sometimes they just come with an underling that they're trying to train. So, and they, okay. they, they should have cards, and it mm-hmm. should be very easy to figure that out. Sometimes they come with the DEA. Holy snap. The DEA, the yeah. DEA. Then you know you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I will say something about the DEA. And this is, you know you're in trouble, you know that there's a complaint, because the DEA doesn't come out unless there was a, a controlled substances-related complaint. Mm-hmm. But the DEA is actually far less scary than these, this other group I'm going to talk about. The DEA is just looking for what it's looking for, and usually they have better, bigger fish to fry than what's happening in a vet hospital. Folks you really have to be on your toes about are if the inspector is accompanied by somebody from the Division of Investigations from the Department of Consumer Affairs. Uh-oh, can you say that one again? Okay, Who is it? it? it they'll give you a card, yeah. and it'll say Division of Investigations, mm-hmm. Department of Consumer Affairs. Okay. That's a scary one, huh? Yeah. That's really scary. Okay. That means that there's a very serious complaint, mm-hmm. and that the vet board has hired the Division of Investigations to go out and investigate it. Wow. Now, okay. And is right there a now, chance a practice wouldn't know about an investigation by this no. point? You, they, no. they wouldn't have a clue? No. Wow. No, they might not have a clue. That's and scary. So, yeah. So sometimes they all show up, the DEA, the DOI, and the VMB. But, but I want to tell you the most important thing is that the Division of Investigations, they are cops. They're ex-cops. And they want to interview people. And you mm. must never let them interview the people without counsel present. Okay. So if you do get an inspection okay. where... Part of the inspection is from the Division of Investigations, and they say, okay, this is a list of people we'd like to interview. You just say to them, we don't want you to, we, we don't want you to interview anybody without our counsel being present. You want to use my name. Most of them know me. They know I don't interfere. Yes. They mm-hmm. say fine because they're, they're cops. Mm-hmm. They understand. Mm-hmm. They it know doesn't that. make them more angry. It doesn't make them you know, think that you're you know, hiding something. It, right. it, it just protects you mm-hmm. because the worst thing you can do is have your little vet assistant in a room with somebody who was an ex-cop who's trying to get information from her. Mm-hmm. Right. Yikes, that sounds double scary. Yeah. It's awful. Wow. And and then, you know, the thing, too, the advantage of having an attorney present or me present or whoever is present as an attorney um, what they do is they set up the interview to happen at their offices, which there are offices like in Pomona and their various places. Then I can tell by the questions that are asked what the issue is. 
because they're not going to tell you why they're there to investigate. They're just okay. going to ask you stuff. That's so surprising to me that I could get that far and a veterinary hospital doesn't even know that there's a complaint, especially one that serious. Like I find that a little disturbing to know that this can happen and, and the veterinarian that was charged with some, not charged with something, but a veterinarian that has a case brought up against him. Like that's just shocking well, to me. I can see that though. I mean, we've all been through situations, right? Where you've, I mean, I, I would, I shouldn't say we all have, but I've been through several situations where you go to small claims court, right? Somebody has brought a small claims suit against you for, you know, what they're claiming is malpractice or 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 whatnot, and you know that person, especially with pets, right? They're really aggrieved. They feel that they've been extremely wronged, and a lot of times it has to do with finances. And I mean, I, you know, Bonnie, you can speak to this, but I just assume that if I, you know, talk to some of my friends and they say, "Oh, you can sue the clinic," and then we go to small claims court, and maybe you know the judge says there's no case and kind of throws it out, that they just get upset, and the next person they call is the VMB, and if they raise enough of I don't know a stink you know does you know I mean if, if the if the VMB is bringing the DIR and all these people to the front door they don't have any evidence yet right they're collecting evidence so it probably just has to be the level of extremity of the complaint brought I don't know I mean you can speak to that well, Bonnie, but that would it, my, it's usually my more than that it's usually a numbers game so say there was a kind of a bad inspection but you sent in all your compliance and then a few months later there was a complaint by somebody and you know their dog died and then shortly after that, there was a complaint by somebody and their cat died. Mm. And, you know, it gets to be More like, like a, a snowball effect. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, unless the initial complaint is, you know, <laughs> I had five dogs that all died there or there's drug related stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're so expecting hot it's spots. usually okay. more than just one plain, one person complaining. One but egregious then I've thing. seen ones where it was just one person complaining. So it's. The, the thing, too, is I have to step back and tell you what's happening right now. Right now, after Jessica Seiferman became the um, executive officer of the board, they all realized that the previous executive officer had basically run them into the poorhouse. Yeah. So the vet mm -hmm. board in California has no money. Mm -hmm. And the DOI costs money. They have to pay them hourly to investigate. So right now, they're not involving the DOI as much as Anne Marie was involving the DOI. She liked involving the DOI, so she sent a lot of cases to the DOI. Hmm. So it really depends on the the what the vet board, what the status is mm -hmm. there, and whether that executive officer thinks that everything should be investigated to that mm -hmm. level or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a conversation yesterday with a deputy attorney general in a case completely, you know, I wasn't really involved in the case, but we were talking about the case because I know about it. And she said that's one where the DOI should have been involved because the investigation was simply not done because the board doesn't know how to do investigations. They don't have cops, the ex-cops on the board. So anyway, it kind of varies. And it, it, as they get more money, they'll probably send the DOI out in more cases. And it really kind of depends cool. on the executive officer and how whether she thinks that an investigation by the DOI is necessary. Wow. So watch well, it sounds out, like we like Jessica politics. in that position, at least for now. Right? Yeah, Jessica's <laughs> really very good. She's, yeah. she's smart and she's good. Um, then I just want to add one thing, um, and because, David, you talked about um, the, the, all, the in, all the stuff that they found. The one caution I give people, make sure that your compliance documentation is really professional you know so write them a letter 
point out every single place you've done a correction, send photographs of everything. We do this for a lot of our clients. The insurance doesn't pay for it, but we have clients who want us to put together those compliance packages. Mm -hmm. But just make sure that when you send in your compliance, you don't just send them a bunch of photographs and you don't send it piecemeal because they are not able to really, especially now with COVID, to really put the package together. So what you want to do is you want to put the package together um, you want to put a cover letter that says, you know, number whatever, you said that we didn't do this. We have corrected it. We included photographs, whatever you've asked for, because over in the left-hand column, they will tell you what they want, whether they want, um, you know, a, a receipt from somebody that fixed something or a photograph of something you fixed or changed or, you know, whatever it is they want as evidence of the compliance. Yeah, I just had a board inspection with one of my clients and I did that for them. They didn't have a practice manager there. So they asked me to come in and help them with their inspection uh, report back to them. And I did that same thing. I just took a Word document and then copied and pasted everywhere where they said this was a violation, you know, subsection, you know, articles, paragraph, sentence, blah, blah. Right. And so I just put, okay, number one here, you know, here it is. And then I, I labeled the photos before I uploaded them the same thing. So it would correlate like this is, you know, violation number one, violation number two, picture, you know, number five or whatever. And it, it flowed nicely because I had that feeling. I'm like, so I upload 50 pictures and they, what, they, they don't know what the inside of this cupboard right. is. Why is this cupboard, you know, here? What's it showing? So yeah, I agree, Bonnie. It was, I very much felt like it was a shit show unless you really outline it and say exactly what everything is and identify it. Oh yeah, because I've seen ones that ended up with an accusation down the road where the inspection compliance was just was very piecemeal, you know, where the veterinarian did it himself and he sent a few pictures one day and he'd send a receipt the next day and, you know, and right. you know, they, they go to the board but you know, there there right. isn't somebody there who's gonna put them all together in a nice package. So yeah, that's exactly. important. So I know Bonnie, we talk a lot about the Practice Act. I buy a new one every year and right. I feel like sometimes I crack it, sometimes I don't. <laughs> but to me it's worth it because I know if I need something as a resource in there that I can look it up and share it with my client or whatever the case may be. So tell me why we live and die by the Practice Act and why if we die in in that sense of the word meaning you know for having criminal charges or shutdowns or fines or things like that tell me about why the practice act is so important to veterinary practices well it's actually all the statutes and regulations that control veterinary medicine so if 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 a veterinary hospital doesn't follow all those statutes and regulations and what basically happens is the statutes come first you know their legislation and then they require the, the regulations. And so the regulations are written by the, the board. Um, the statutes are legislative. So everything mm -hmm. that a veterinary hospital has to do is in the Practice Act. And that's true of all states. I've done a lot of work for a large pet store that does vaccine clinics. And so I had to research the Practice Acts in all states. And right. for for the most part, I mean, they're they're all over the map. There isn't any yeah. state that just has a thing called the Practice Act. So it's similar to California, where you've got <clears throat> you've got statutes and regulations throughout. The most important ones are the Business and Professions Code statutes, and then uh, Title 16 regulations. But that's basically the law. And so if you don't follow the law, 
then you're in violation and they can suspend your premises permit, revo revoke your premises permit, mm -hmm. um, or revoke your license. Now, I, I like to say one thing when we talk about practice acts because it's not just the practice act, it's also the standard of care. So there's two things going on um, in veterinary medicine. You have to conform with the standard of care. You also have to comply with the practice act and they're different. You talked earlier about medical records and on during a veterinary medical board inspection when they ask for medical records or they're asking for a specific medical record and i know when you've presented to our managers groups you've done just hour and a half long lectures specifically on medical records can you tell us one or two or ten things that veterinary practices do on a regular basis that we're doing just egregiously wrong or things that we can do on the flip side of that to prevent a veterinary medical board case? I think an interesting thing right now is, and this is something that I probably wouldn't have said two years ago or even a year ago, I find that a lot of the computerized medical records are causing a big problem with um, veterinarians entering complete information. And I'm getting more and more cases that I've had to like pour over the computerized medical records and convince the board that everything is actually there. And I mean, I think it's interesting because as the medical records get more advanced, more veterinarians are putting less in the records. And you know, the answer right. I always get is, you know, well, it's it, I, all I have to do is sit down and put this in, the rest gets put mm -hmm. in automatically. Well, the pre-populated stuff is really dangerous. Because, for example, I have a case where pre-populated, it says B-A-R, pink mucous membranes, yada, yada, yada. And then when it talks about the actual um, presentation of the dog, it says laterally recumbent. Not quite bar. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you, the, I'm having, I'm seeing much more of a problem with computerized records. And two, a lot of the young veterinarians, and I don't want to point the fingers at them, but, you know, they're used to computers, they're very computer savvy, mm -hmm. but they're not putting in all right. the required information. So they're not putting in their initials, and they're not putting in some of the detail, because I think they think that it gets in there automatically somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, There's also a couple of different um, computer um, uh, software that's extremely difficult to be able to print it out so that it makes sense to the people at the board who are looking at it. So I would say if you have a computerized record keeping system, which is a great thing, that everybody knows that they're still responsible for entering a certain amount of the information and somebody like the practice manager or somebody should be making sure that, that the records are being put into that system so that if they have to be printed out and sent to the board, we're able to get them out. So I would say the biggest thing right yeah. now I'm seeing with medical records is the problems with the computer-generated ones. And that's a little scary because more and more practices are going paperless or paperlike right. to electronic medical records. And so, yeah, that transition to going paperless or paperlike, yeah, is being careful. I do notice a lot of practices will do things like antibiotic injection, but it doesn't say what type of antibiotic yeah. injection. And if it does and it just says something like amicacin or something, it doesn't talk about then the strength, the route, the, right. you know, all that kind of good stuff. 
Yeah, and so, I've, I've, I've yeah. had that. See, so that's really the thing. What the, what the vet will say to me when I say, why didn't you put down the strength and the root, root of administration and all the other stuff you got to put down? And they say, well, because it's it's standard. You know, it's listed someplace else nope. on the computer. No, it's and not. When we, all, you know, all, we only use amicacin at this strength or whatever they say. Yeah. And I say, but that's not good enough. You have to have right. it in that person's record. Got to prove that. So yeah. you you got to have that detail, and that's one of the problems I see. The other big, huge problem that I see, and this happens with the computer records um, also, is the client communication. There's Sometimes it's in a separate place. Sometimes people don't even really know where it is. They can't find it. And sometimes they aren't even adding it into the yeah, record. Yeah, it's just missing so altogether. So that's a problem down the road because if there's no client communication, I don't care what the vet says he told the client. It's not there. It didn't happen. Yeah, you can't prove mm. it. Right. Totally That's understandable. So, Bonnie, I want to switch gears slightly from medical records, but I want to dig into a topic that you mentioned earlier. And it sounds like unless there's more types of actions that the veterinary medical board could bring against a clinic, it seems like there's two major ones. One's One is kind of a compliance thing. So, for example, you know, Regulation X says you have to have closed shelving in surgery. You don't. You have an inspection. You're dinged for it. They come back. It still happens. Like it's kind of an egregious um, checklist issue, right? But then the second one is, for lack of a better term, it's malpractice. This idea of a client typically or maybe the board or both of them, you know, together bring an action to say, you you killed my dog. You didn't do something right. And what's interesting is that seems to be a really it's lack of a better word, gray area, right? Because Dr. Sam gives ampicillin to parvo dogs and Dr. Jones gives Batril, right? So malpractice cases or, or, or stand, as you said, standard of care cases that are brought to the board, how does that work? What is the justification that the board would use to bring a case like that? And what's the defense, at least if, you know, provided that the veterinary hospital, say, has not done something egregious? Um, how do you defend against, you know, a, a non-veterinarian saying you did something wrong here? Okay, well, standard of care is when I went to law school, and I love this definition, my um, professor called it the Dr. Doo-Doo rule. What doctors do, <laughs> That's do. great. <laughs> I was thinking more of doo-doo, but okay. Yeah, right, yeah. sure. And what it means is that the, st- the standard of care is, is a moving target. It changes with time. So a good example is pre and post pain medication for spades. 20 years ago, nobody was doing pre and post, you know, routinely pre and post pain medication for spades. If you don't do it now, you'll be taken to the carpet for not providing services within the standard of care because it's now considered standard of care. So it's a, it changes. Intraoral x-rays is something that, that people are trying to change, but the board is being very cautious about that, but that eventually everybody will have to do intraoral x-rays. So mm-hmm. it's something that changes over time. So what Moving happens target. when there's an allegation is that the boards, it either comes from the board's in-house doctor, Dr. Beth Parvin, or they send it out to an expert who reviews the medical record and says, yes, this veterinarian conduct was below the standard of care. I, I kind of have a good example, a case that I'm settling, so I won't give any names or details. Protect the innocent, my right? Client, my client was a boarded surgeon, removed a mass. Okay, so the mass was removed, and he did a um, staging CT. He's a boarded surgeon. Okay. So the dog ended up dying, but the dog didn't die relative to the mass being removed. 
But the allegations and the accusation were that he was below the standard of care because he didn't do a full body CT scan. Well, their expert was ACVIM. My expert, my person was a boarded surgeon. So I hired a boarded surgeon to be my expert who said, no, we don't do full body CT scans with those kind of masses. We do what's called a staging CT, you know, just to kind of see what we're going to be dealing with when we get in there. Mm -hmm. So that's a good example. So it's a fight of the experts. And, you know, it's my job to come up with an expert that I think can persuasively give an argument that my client was not below the standard of care. And, and Andrea, if you know George Cuellar, like I use him a lot mm-hmm. for my expert. He's, he's very smart and he knows how to testify. But that's really what it ends up being is the fight of the experts. So is having a practice attorn- attorney on retainer worth it? Okay, well, that's, I mean, I'm going to be entirely honest. I mean, you know, I, I am happy to answer any questions for anybody for free. So... There aren't a lot of people out there that have the level of information that I have only because this is all I do. So most of the other attorneys that do similar to what I do that sometimes defend veterinarians also defend human doctors and nurses and engineers and other professions. Mm -hmm. All I defend is veterinarians and I've defended over 500 of them in, in 20 years. So, I mean, I don't think you're going to get the level of overall knowledge from an attorney another attorney and i'm just being honest Mm -hmm. but then again i don't expect people to have me on retainer i've got two people that have me on retainer just because they felt that it was important to them that they wanted to know that i was on retainer but as Mm -hmm. you know i'll answer your phone call anytime Mm -hmm. and i mean unless i have to give you two or three hours of free time which you would never um, expect me to do you know, I don't expect to get paid. I'm happy mm-hmm. to help the profession. So I, I, I really so don't much, think Bonnie. it's worth it for you to have an attorney on retainer. The other problem, too, is you have to be careful because a lot of these attorneys that are doing administrative law for other, like for doctors and lawyers, I mean, for uh, human doctors, and they don't understand the vet board or the vet profession. So I, right. I would say, no, you don't want an attorney on retainer. And just call me when you need me. What if there are things that I know we're doing in our practice, my practice? Let's say, for example, um, something that we're doing, I know it's wrong, but my practice owner or manager management will not change it. It's just the way it's been doing it for 100 years. We're, mm-hmm. we're not ever going to change it. And the, one classic example that comes to mind is compounding medications. Mm-hmm. When I first was involved in veterinary medicine, that was a thing. Like we compounded medications right there, and it was no problem. And now that's a huge no-no. And mm-hmm. I know practices that just, you know, they know it's not right, but they're doing it anyway. So how can managers out there, when they want to make a change in their practice and they want to be proactive and they have something in their practice that they want to do, they know is right by their patients, by their employees, by their clients, by, you know, the Veterinary Practice Act, all these things that we talk about, what do we do when we're stuck in that type of situation? I think about all you can do is really document it. I mean, if if it's egregious enough, then you should write to your to the practice owner and say, you know, and give him statutes and regulations and, you know, tell him you're in violation of the Practice Act because you're doing X, Y, Z. The problem is that the, the associate vets get in trouble all the time because they end up doing things just because the practice owner requires them to be done right. that way. Yeah. And then, you know, it's not an excuse to say, you know, he made me do it. 
So mm -hmm. it's a very difficult situation. I'm finding a lot of questions right now about telemedicine, which, mm -hmm. you know, we could be on the phone for another right? what a buzzword. <laughs> on that. Right, right. Um, but as you know, in California, you have to have an existing VCPR. Right. The VCPR is even more specific normally, but they have kind of, you know, backed off of that condition-specificness. That's where standard of care comes in, however, because if you... If you look at a patient on telemedicine and you should have been able, it should have brought them in to look at the patient in person, that's a standard of care issue. But beyond that, I know that there are a lot of practices that are doing telemedicine and I get the associate vets calling me saying, I know I'm not supposed to do this. What do I do? Right. I usually tell them to quit. Exactly. It's their license that's on the line. Yeah. Right. But for practice managers, I mean, the board's not going to come after you. But I think, you know, for your reputation, you don't really want to be managing practices that are doing things that are not right. Otherwise, just make sure that you've documented your efforts to tell them in detail why they right. shouldn't be doing it. So, Bonnie, we always like to make sure that for our listeners that there's really tangible stuff that they take away, um, and we and we use this term on the show that they can put into place tomorrow. So, what are you know one, two, or three you know real quick basic things that our managers or practice owners or we you know we call them positive leaders could do literally you know we're recording this on a Tuesday tomorrow on Wednesday morning they could do these two things that would help them be more compliant with the medical uh, with the practice act I think there's a lot to be said for training and I think everybody should buy a new practice act every year and if you look at the first I'm looking at mine right now it's five pages in or so. It gives you all of the new legislation. It tells you every single one of those statutes and regulations that's been changed since the previous year. I think that the practice managers should be looking at that information and sharing that with their staff so that all the veterinarians and the techs and the, and the uh, vet assistants know what changes there might have been. And also, that's a good time to review what you're supposed to be doing. The other thing, too, that I know is very frustrating because you don't have any real mechanism for finding this out. But, for example, uh, we talked about standard of care. But as far as um, regulation interpretation, right now the board wants not only the suture material, but the pattern of the suturing on every medical record. Now, I, how are you supposed to know that unless you listen to me talk or you had that happen to you or you had it happen to a friend who told you? So I think talking to your staff is the most important thing so the staff understands how important it is and that the hospital could lose its license and the, uh, the managing licensee could lose his license if they mm -hmm. don't follow the Practice Act. And, and again, a good starting point is to have the practice manager or somebody there go through these new statutes and regulations mm -hmm. and make sure they're up with everything that's changed. And that's just communication. So again, something that you didn't ask me the question about how to avoid a complaint, but I'm just going to talk a little bit about communication if I could. Yes, please. Communication with the client is the biggest, best thing the veterinarian can do. If, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Andrea, there are some bad veterinarians out there <laughs> yes. who, whose clients love them so much that no matter what happens, they would never turn them in. Right. And it's because of the communication. It's because every time there's a bad outcome, the veterinarian tells the owner. Every time there's, you know, a, a bad news of any kind, 
The veterinarian tells the owner. The veterinarians have close ties with the owners. Frequently, they live in the same neighborhood. There's just this communication thing that makes the owners feel comfortable with the vet, and they would never turn them in. What I find as the veterinarians are now younger, the hospitals are bigger, the hospitals aren't owned by veterinarians, they're owned by corporate, is that we're getting far away from communicating with the clients, and the clients are getting bad news from the receptionist. And unless right. you have a, an especially wonderful, warm-hearted, smart receptionist, which I know they're still not the same, yeah, you know, you, you don't want them to be the ones that are talking to the clients. So the yeah, veterinarians really need to talk to the clients, and they need to be honest with them, and they need to make sure that they are writing down all the communication they have with the client. In this case, I just talked about one of the problems was that the the mass was removed, and my client wrote down removed the mask, and then the owner remembered that the client had said something about it being attached to something else, but he was able to get it. And that was a big part of the case, was that there was nothing in the record saying that it was attached to something else. Now, there was nothing even in the communication where the vet said, you know, I did have a talk with Mrs. So-and-so, and I told her that there were some complications during the surgery because it seemed to be attached, but I was able to, you know, disconnect it or whatever. So, Communication is really key yes. in writing down the communication. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> Can't say it enough, right? Communicate, communicate, and document, document, right? And, and be nice about it. You know, I mean, it's just, the, the, again, the veterinarians need to, to talk to their clients. And learn how to talk to if they can't because I think that's a lot of times a barrier curbside now the phones are barriers all these different things that prevent yeah. you know the breakdown in communication and that's just something that they have to strive to get past that obstacle what whatever the case may be for sure so at this part in the show we have been able to talk about these outrageous and funny stories that make our chin hit the ground and our eyes pop out like pugs and just say like no way that just happened is that seriously real? Like, pinch me, am I dreaming? You could never make that shit up story. And of course, change the names to protect the innocent. But do you have a short story that you can share with us that made your made you just wanna like palm slap on the forehead, no way that just happened? Okay, um, veterinarian who I got on probation, I mean, he had a lot of serious things in the accusation. I got him on probation, and then they filed a petition to revoke and it was because he was using alcohol. He was being tested for alcohol testing. And he had hundreds of positive alcohol tests. And he talked me into the fact that they were all because of kombucha tea and homemade sauerkraut. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Okay. So as we start to wrap up the episode, I'd love to ask you one piece of advice that you could share with our positive listeners today. What would it be? What, what do you think is something that you'd be able to share that they could take back? with them and their practices and their walk. Just to make sure that they understand the Practice Act and strive to work within the standard of care and communicate with their clients. I mean, if people did that, I mean, and I'm not talking about doing drugs and all that, that's obvious, but you know, as long as you're a good, <laughs> honest veterinarian and you've got no problem with drugs and alcohol, then you know, I really just think that if you strive to have a relationship with your clients, and not just with the animals. And I know it's hard with COVID, but go back to the mm -hmm. old days when you were, you know, John Hamill and you were the only vet in Laguna Beach 
and mm -hmm. you know you worked 24 7 and not that you have to work those kind of hours but treat your clients that way mm -hmm. because you know so many of these clients feel now that they're not really connecting with the veterinarian the hospitals are big yeah. um the, i have a lot of cases where there's too many veterinarians involved Mm -hmm. You know, there's 10, 15, 20 different veterinarians involved, and the original veterinarian, who's maybe the surgeon, has washed his hands of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now there's a huge complaint because the owner of the pet felt that they were just completely never given any information. So, Bonnie, tell me about your most epic failure that has left a lasting impact. I, I became good friends with the deputy attorney general, which was fortunate because I really felt like a fool. I mean, if making the art, the arguments that I was making in that hearing, I couldn't believe what I was saying. And of course, at the end of the day, then the interesting thing about this guy is that he he then filed a petition to get his license back. He had his license revoked, filed a petition to get his license back and admitted to the board that all this time he had been drinking. And I just was I watched it on the, the board hearing and I just wanted to scream because I just, you know, did the lawyer thing. And I would never do that again. Now I'm very, very, very straightforward with my clients. You don't like what I have to say, then find another lawyer. So tell me about your proudest moment. Proudest moment was when Misty Hirschbein gave me the President's Award at the Southern California VMA dinner. Why veterinary medicine? What do you just love about our profession? You're scientists, and I'm a scientist. And what I didn't like when I was doing medical malpractice for a short time was that the doctors are much more they're not as scientific and they're and they hate lawyers and they're they're just much more difficult whereas veterinarians are scientists you have to be because you don't have client you don't have patients that talk to you so since I'm a scientist, I think veterinarians are more like scientists and I just love working with them. How do you balance work and life and do you experience any guilt? in that boundary setting? Well, now things are better actually in a weird sort of way because I'm working from home, which is nice because you don't have to drive. And the vet board has no money. So since approximately June of, of 2019, we've had very few cases. So my work-life balance is actually great, although I do stress over not having enough cases. But th that having been said, it, it, it's, it's good because I, I'm not stressed. Uh, two years ago or so, I did not have an associate. I had four or five different accusations all pending. All of them were going to hearing. I felt constantly like I wasn't giving any individual veterinarian enough of my time. And that's what would keep me up at night was, you know, am I going to be prepared for this hearing? And so what keeps you up at night? Um, things that you stress over, things that cause you anxiety in your in your practice? Well, only I mean, now I'm, I'm good because I'm not that busy. But when I was really busy, um, I'm a perfectionist. I'm not I've never wanted to be a trial attorney because I'm not good at just sort of talking out of my bum, if you know what I mean. I mean, I need to know all the details of the case. So, I mean, I go to a hearing extremely uber prepared and I know every facet of the case and I have all my ducks in a row. And consequently, I'm very successful at those hearings on the accusations, which, again, is why I'm frustrated about the, the guy where I believed that his alcohol tests were due to sauerkraut. But, you know, that having been said, it's my it's my perfectionism that makes me stress. So now I have enough time to prepare for those hearings and I don't know what's going to happen when the board gets more money or this COVID thing is over, 
but um, you know, hopefully I'll get things spread out so that I won't be so slammed. But that's what stresses me out, not being prepared. So Bonnie, what gets you up in the morning? Oh, I really like what I do. And I, you know, it's interesting. I, even when I haven't been that busy now, I have interesting other things that come along. Like I have veterinarians that are starting different new businesses and I have, I do some consulting with some other big companies. And, you know, I check my email when I get up in the, when I get up, because I work out every morning. So I check my email and invariably there's something on there that's really exciting that makes me want to get to my computer and respond and research something for somebody or, you know, something like that. So I, I like what I do. I like working with the veterinarians. I like the veterinary profession and um, all the issues in the Practice Act. So that's what I like and that's why I get up. Thank you, Bonnie. You are amazing. I am so, so happy that you came on the show to hang out with us. Thank you. Well, thank you. For all the positive leaders listening out there, we hope you learned something to take back to your practice to put into use tomorrow. We want to hear from you, good, bad, and everything in between. So email us at positiveleaders at gmail.com. That's positive with a -A P-A-W. Want to hear about a specific topic on the podcast? Email us. Want to have your You Can't Make This Shit Up story featured? Email us. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Positive Leadership Podcast. And be sure to rate us. Check out our website at www.positiveleaders.com. That's positive with a P-A-W. And as always, catch us on all the socials. Social media management and website design by Dog Days Consultant. This is Andrea. And David. Signing off until next time. Stay happy and sane. The Positive Leadership Podcast is solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast are general in nature, and such information, statements, comments, views, and opinions, and the receipt of this podcast by any listener are not intended to be and should not be construed as the provision of any business advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers and guests, are those of Andrew Crabtree, David Liss, and their guests only, may not be current, and do not represent the statements, comments, views, and opinions of any other person or business entity. Andrea Crabtree, David Liss, and or the Positive Leadership Podcast do not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage of any kind whatsoever, is expressly disclaimed.